So we're in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 13. And I want to start with uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, that great children's fantasy. Violet Beauregard is a bratty girl. She's arrogant, she's entitled, she's snooty, she is rude, and she is disobedient. So nobody feels so sorry for her, or too sorry for her, when she eats a piece of experimental gum in the factory that she's been told and warned not to eat. And as a result of eating the gum, she begins to turn blue and purple, and then she blows up, she puffs up until she's a giant round blueberry. And the question is then, of course, to her hor for her horrified parent and everyone else, what to do to fix her. And Willy Wonka, of course, knows what to do. And so he sends her down to the juicing room to have all the blueberry juice squeezed out of her before she explodes. And that's what today's passage actually is about. It's about when we get puffed up. And ways that we can get deflated again, that we can get squeezed back to normal size and shape. In other words, today's passage is about pride and arrogance and what to do about them. And nothing causes us to become puffed up like religion and knowledge. At least that's been my experience. The times that I have been most passionate about Jesus and most committed to my faith and have enjoyed the richest experience of feeling close to God, those have also been the times that I've been tempted, most tempted, to look around at everyone else and think, what's their problem? Why don't they get it? Why are they so lukewarm and so complacent? Also, after every academic degree I've earned, and to a lesser extent, certain conferences I've gone to, certain excellent books I've read. I've learned so much new stuff, so many wonderful truths. And so I felt enlightened. I now got it. I got it. And so I was so tempted to look around at everyone else and think, they just don't get it yet. They're ignorant. And so you know what God has had to do in those cases because God loves me? After each new infusion of knowledge, God has had to deflate me, to humble me. Like Violet Beauregard, God has had to put me through experiences, often hard experiences, to help squeeze the arrogance out of me so I could be normal again. Because knowledge puffs up. Paul's going to say that a little later in the letter when we get to chapter 8. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And building each other up is what it's all about. Well, the Corinthians to whom Paul wrote this letter that we're looking at, they have a lot of knowledge. They have also had wonderful, powerful, rich spiritual experiences. We'll learn more about those when we get to chapter 12. And so the Corinthians think they know it all. They think that they're so wise and they're so spiritual. And they're really proud about that. They're puffed up. And Paul's challenge is, how do I deflate them so that they can be normal again, so that they can be uh, functional without hurting themselves and others? 
Because when we're puffed up with arrogance and pride, we wind up invariably hurting ourselves and others. We won't listen. We won't learn. We look down on others. We judge others. And in return, people start to resent us. And it leads to discord and division. And this is exactly what was happening in the church in Corinth. They were fighting with each other. They were quarreling with Paul. Some of them, it seems, were identifying with a guy named Apollos, who they liked very much. Apollos had been to Corinth. He had spent time ministering to them. And he was really impressive. He uh, was super educated. He was super knowledgeable and intelligent. He was polished. He was smooth. He was an awesome speaker. Apollos probably could have been a world-class preacher, someone who could have been on the radio, had millions of subscribers for his podcast or his YouTube channel. And some of the Corinthians are like, yeah, we're with Apollos. He's our guy. He's our kind of leader. He's way better than Paul. I mean, Paul's kind of embarrassing, in fact. And so we're against Paul, some of them are saying. And, and then, then these groups are fighting with each other because some people are defending Paul. They're breaking up into factions. And we don't know all the reasons why, but we do know they're disunited and that it has to do with their arrogance and with their being puffed up. And that has to do with their religious experiences and their knowledge and their wisdom. They think they're really spiritual, and it's Paul's job to deflate them. Not just for the fun of it, and that is a temptation, right? We, we see a really arrogant person, and it makes us angry, right? And we think, boy, I'd really like to see someone give it to that person. <laughs> I'd like to see someone take them down a few notches. That would be really fun to watch. Am I the only one? Who... <laughs> But, but that's not Paul's motivation. No, in verse 6, Paul says he's doing it for their benefit, for their good. Paul knows arrogance is not good for them, especially when it's leading them to fight with each other and to look down on Paul, their leader. This isn't an ego thing for Paul. No, Paul knows that he has only two reasons uh, to be leading them and overseeing them in the first place. He has two purposes for which he's speaking into their life in a leadership capacity. First, Paul's a servant of Christ. Verse 1. Paul has to carry out the wishes and do the work of Jesus among them, the Corinthians, and others. Paul knows he's no one special. He's very clear within himself that he's just a servant of God. And then second, Paul realizes he's been entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. We've seen this in past weeks, that those mysteries are that God is saving the world by turning it upside down, by doing something no one would expect, which is by saving the world through a cross, through an unassuming act of love, a small, weak, unimpressive act, a scandalous act, an offensive act even crucifixion. And Paul has been entrusted with the task of proclaiming and modeling, living out that mystery. And so Paul's only purpose in relation to the Corinthians is to serve them for their good and to faithfully share and model the mystery of the cross for them. 
So Paul seeks to deflate them again for their own good. And the first way he does this, and this is for us too, it's, it's how we all can be deflated when we get puffed up. Paul says, stop judging others. If we could go to the next slide. Stop judging. We need to realize that God will judge everyone so we don't have to. And in fact, we need to stop. And Paul lays this out in verses 3 to 5. Let me read it again. He says, I carry very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Now, judging is exactly what the Corinthians are doing. They're judging Paul. He's not, oppress uh, he's not impressive, they say. And maybe his sermons are not as good as Apollos's. And Apollos is a lot more interesting. He's taught us so much. We felt so wise. We felt really knowledgeable when he was teaching us, that Apollos guy. And Paul's kind of ragged. He's kind of ratty. His clothes are kind of threadbare. He's weather-beaten. To be honest, Paul's kind of embarrassing. And, and you can't trust Paul anyway. He's, he's sort of wishy-washy. He, you know, he hangs out with Jews, and he's all kosher, and he's proper. And then Paul hang out, hangs out with Greeks, and he eats pork chops with them. But what's up with that? Paul's inconsistent. Paul's unscrupulous. We'll see this in chapters 8 to 10, these accusations. And Paul says in reply, don't judge me. I, I've been sent by God as a servant, and I've been entrusted with God's mysteries and I will have to answer to God one day, but I don't have to answer to you. You're not my judge. Judging me isn't your job. And guess what? Judging each other isn't our job either. Because judging goes hand in hand with being puffed up. We know what's right. We're spiritual. We have our theology straight. We live like a Christian should. We have followed the rules. We have worked hard. We have been faithful, and you haven't. When that's our attitude, we're in trouble. So Paul warns us when we think this way. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Motives. That's something we can't see, right? Often when we're judging people, we, we don't really know what their real motives are or their backgrounds either. My kids are, are part of a scout troop, and um, they have a saying that they repeat whenever they welcome a new scout into their troop. May the greatest scoutmaster of all time, I think that's God, scouts do have a religious background, may the greatest scoutmaster of all time be with us until we meet again. And then get this part. And may we not judge each other until we have walked in each other's moccasins for at least two weeks. <laughs> and people kind of chuckle, right? But, um, but there's something profound there. Until you've walked in someone else's shoes, 
you don't know what you would do if you were them. If you had their parents and their upbringing and their struggles and their weaknesses and temptations, you don't know what it's like to be them. So how dare you judge them? Now, Paul's not totally against judging. In fact, in the very next chapter, he's going to tell the Corinthians to judge someone's behavior, to agree together that it's wrong and to tell this person to stop what this person is doing. Yes, at times we're called to judge people's behaviors, but not to judge people's motives and not to judge them as people. Don't size up how valuable or worthy they are based on how they look from the outside. Because when you do that, it's a sign that you're puffed up. And judging will just puff you up more. Okay, so judging. Second way we can deflate when we get puffed up. And that is to remember that everything we have has been given to us as a gift. Verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? You could translate it this way. What makes you a special snowflake? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? What would the Corinthians be with, 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 um, without Paul, for instance? They, they wouldn't even be there as God's people to be able to look down on Paul. If Paul hadn't first sacrificed his life and his comfort to go tell them about Jesus and to teach them all about Jesus. They've forgotten that everything they have, they received as a gift. And everything you have and everything I have, we received as a gift too. Your beauty, some of you are beautiful or handsome. Your great athletic skills or musical abilities, your temperament, maybe you're calm or you're disciplined or you have a great personality. And all of that is a combination of genetics which you had nothing to do with. Your parents gave you your genes. And, and also a combination of your upbringing, your training, your education, which someone else did for you too. What do you have that you didn't receive? Maybe you say, well, I worked hard for all that I have. Or, or well, th then the question is, Oh, someone gave you a job or, or helped you start a business or raised you to be entrepreneurial? And whatever you produce and sell, it's made of God's raw materials. It's made of stuff God made and put in this world. Or if it's a service you, your business provides, it's carried out by people that God made. And the freedom to start a business or to look for a job or to, to find your way in life, you didn't fight to gain that freedom. It was handed to you by others. You have nothing, absolutely nothing, that wasn't given to you. Your work ethic was given to you. Again, a combination of your genetics, your upbringing, experiences that, that shaped you as you lived in God's world. Everything you have, everything you are, is a gift. 
right down to the air we breathe, right? And above all, the fact that you're sitting here this morning learning about God is a gift. God invited you. God led you here. God supplied this community of people with all of our gifts to minister to you and to each other. It's all a gift. And once you realize that, how can you be puffed up? What do you have that you didn't receive? We should be forever grateful, not prideful. And then the third way, we can be deflated when we get puffed up. It's to follow Jesus, which involves embracing being a loser for and with Jesus. I'll explain. Remember the guy that we follow, our leader, they mocked him. They taunted him. They ridiculed him. They shamed him. And then they hung him on a cross, maybe naked, to hang there and suffer and die in front of all the gawkers and mockers. That's what they did to our leader. And he said to us, want to follow me? Want to be one of my people? Take up your cross and follow. Because the cross is the only way that God is going to fix and restore and rescue this God-forsaken world. And yes, it's foolish and it's scandalous, but somehow it's wisdom. It's God's wisdom. And so Paul says, not only do I preach that, I live it. My own life, my own way of life matches my message. In fact, my life is exhibit A, verse 9 and following. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. And what Paul is describing here is what Roman generals would do when they won a great battle and then they came home and, and they'd celebrate, they'd have a great parade and they'd parade through the downtown, the, the, uh, the, the great wealth they'd captured and the kings they defeated who were on their way to some kind of grand execution probably and some of the best of the defeated soldiers and all the Roman crowds are celebrating and they're jeering and they're mocking the captives. It's the final walk of shame for those in the parade. And then at the end of the parade are the very dregs of the captives. The, the pitiful ones who are going to go to the arena, the Colosseum, and be fed to the lions or fight the gladiators for everyone's entertainment. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, you know what we're talking about here. And, and Paul says... That's who we apostles are. We're like those losers, those most pitiful ones. Everyone is mocking the lowest of the low at the very end of the parade, destined for the worst fate of all. Paul says that's what it's like to be a representative of a crucified king. A king who got executed on a cross. And to represent him well. It's like we're on display everywhere we go for the whole universe, for people on earth, and even for heavenly beings. 
And then at this point, Paul gets really passionate. He's, he's ticked at the Corinthians. He's frustrated because they're rejecting this. They're rejecting the cross. And they're pushing in exactly the opposite direction. The Corinthians want to be great, not least. They want to be on top, not the bottom. They want to be rich, not poor. They want to be respectable, not looked down on. How about you? How about me? Well, Paul goes off about this, and if you've ever wondered if there's sarcasm in the Bible, wonder no more, because here it is. And Sophia read it perfectly. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. Wow, the scum of the earth. The garbage of the world. That's what it's like to represent Jesus well. It means being a loser for Jesus, a fool, and embracing it. And get this, this, this isn't because of our stand on social issues. It isn't because of our beliefs about the moral issues of our day, as important as those issues are, and they are important. But what a genuine follower of Jesus is looked down on for is because their life looks like the cross. They maybe don't have much money or much influence. When others are trying to get ahead, they're serving and sacrificing. When they're slandered and being made fun of, they answer kindly. When they're picked on or taken advantage of, they bless in return. They turn the other cheek. They love and they serve, even their enemies. Let me give you an idea of what this, um, what this might have been like for Paul. And excuse me for a pastor illustration, but it's what I know best. I've been in a lot of rooms with a lot of different pastors. I've been with worship pastors, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago when, when they were sporting their new skinny jeans and their, their cool narrow shoes. And they had their $100 haircuts and they were talking about their new Martin guitars that they'd gotten. And I've been in rooms with, with youth pastors and next-gen pastors who not only look the part, but but some of them had their new $1,500 MacBooks because that was the in computer. And, and they, they talked about how many social media followers they had, you know, back in the days of Twitter. And, and of course, I've been in the room with a lot of senior pastors. And some of them like to swap stats about their Sunday attendance and their budgets and their building projects and their ministry opportunities, you know, occasionally opportunities to speak at this conference uh, or to how they got that book deal or, or how they were going off to this expensive retreat with these important people. And imagine the Apostle Paul in any of those rooms. And, and he doesn't fit. He's the odd guy out. 
because he's got ratty thrift store clothes and an old hand-me-down guitar or computer and an old beat-up car in the parking lot or maybe he even bummed a ride off of someone to get there. He's the guy when everyone is swapping stories trying to one-up one another, you know, nicely, subtly, of course. We pastors learn how to do that. Paul's got nothing to say. He doesn't fit in. He's a failure. He's a loser compared to all the wannabe winners in the room. Because Paul's not been chasing any of that. Not the notoriety, not the cool factor, not the superficial success, not the professional opportunities. No, Paul instead has embraced the cross. And his life, even his body, are absolutely marked by the cross. He's got little money much of the time. He's not much to look at. In fact, by most measures, he looks like he's a loser. We have become the scum of the earth, he says, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Boy, that'll keep you from getting puffed up. Except that so devious are our hearts that we can find a way to be proud and judgy of how we've made bigger sacrifices, how we've laid more down, how we're more committed than everyone else, right? Or um, again, am I the only one? <laughs> but that's not Paul's motivation. He's not bragging about all of his loser credentials because he's proud of them. No, he's just trying to shake the Corinthians and us to wake us up to which way is up. That up is down and down is up because of the cross. That winning is found in losing and living is found in dying and gaining is found in letting go. Not because there's any glory in sacrifice or suffering, but because there's great glory in love. And real love means putting ourselves, or rather putting others, before ourselves. Again and again and again. And because Paul has integrity, he doesn't just preach that. His own life is exhibit A. His life is exhibit A of the cross. And exhibit A of real love. And Paul's not a fool. He's not sacrificing for sacrifice's sake. He's not poor for poverty's sake. No, he's investing everything he has in a better kingdom and a better future. He's hoping to gain back all he's given away with huge interest in the end. That's what he says in verse 8. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. The Corinthians are so spiritual, they think they've arrived, that they're spiritual kings and queens. And Paul says, that day will come, but it's not here yet. One day you will reign, but not yet. And I wish that day had come, because then I could reign with you. <laughs> That's what I'm looking forward to, being exalted by Jesus. But that day isn't here yet. You've got to lose your life before you gain it. You've got to 
put your life on the cross before you can experience the victory of the resurrection. You've got to go through death to get to eternal life. You've got to learn to love before you can be entrusted to lead. You can't get to Easter by skipping over Good Friday. It doesn't work that way. So join me, Paul says to the Corinthians. Stop looking down on me. Stop being puffed up and in your arrogance, fighting with me and fighting with each other. Let's join arms together around the cross. Let's walk the way of the cross, the way of love together. And then one day, we will reign together when Jesus comes back. Verse 5, And at that time, after God judges everything, then each one will receive their praise from God. So, are we puffed up? Puffed up by our knowledge? Puffed up by our religion? Paul says, stop judging others. Realize everything is a gift. And embrace being a loser for and with Jesus. In other words, let the gospel and the message of the cross and God's grace for us through Jesus, let that infect your life. That will deflate you. That will make you humble and loving like a citizen of God's kingdom is meant to be, like Jesus our King is. So let me close with a story, and I might have told this story before. One time when I was in college, the Christian fellowship I was a part of planned an evangelism day. And so we set up a booth in the student center. We put some posters up that were meant to be conversation starters. We were trying to engage other students in conversations about Jesus. We had some uh, tracks ready to give out. We had some music going in the background. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, unbeknownst to us, the Gideons also chose that same day to come to campus to hand out New Testaments. And um, as the day was going on, the, the president of the Hillel group on campus, the student leader in charge of that small Jewish club on campus, walked past our booth. And then a little later, a Gideon handed him a New Testament, and the student leader flipped out. He started yelling. He caused a scene. He said he was being oppressed, um, that we're being so insensitive to the Jews, as we always are, that we were pushing our religion on them on Yom Kippur, no less. And so he's making a big deal, and he goes to the, the, the university administration, and he's bad-mouthing us, and the leaders of our fellowship, including me, are summoned to a meeting with him, with his faculty advisor, and with a dean or two. And I'm feeling defensive. Um, first of all, this guy already has a reputation on campus for being difficult, for being hard to work with, for stirring up trouble. Second, you have to realize that I grew up in a very small town in rural Pennsylvania, not a place like New York. And so when I mentioned Yom Kippur, you all said, oh, wow. But I said, what's Yom Kippur? <laughs> um, and so I'm feeling threatened. I'm feeling misunderstood. I'm feeling oppressed. What about our religious freedom? You know, our, our freedom of religion. And this guy's picking on us. We had no malice. We had no bad intent. He could have just walked by our booth and ignored us. And we didn't know the Gideons would choose to come on campus the same day. And so we're in this meeting, and the faculty sponsor of the Jewish group is kind of 
berating us like we're the bad guys and, and that we're being so insensitive to the Jews on their high holy day. And we're kind of like, we didn't even realize it was their high holy day. You know, we didn't mean any offense. And she's like, well, that's no excuse. In fact, that's part of your problem. You don't even care enough about us to get to know us. And, and I'm feeling more and more defensive and to be honest, more and more puffed up. And the tensions are rising in the room. And then the leader of our fellowship speaks up and he says, you know what? We're sorry. We're, we're sorry we offended you. We obviously don't know enough about you as Jews, or about your faith, or, or what you go through as a minority on, in this culture and on this campus. We could have done our outreach a different day, and we totally should have, and we're very sorry we didn't know enough to be sensitive to you. We need to learn. Please help us. Tell us what it's like to be a Jew on our college campus. And guess what? First, for a second, I'm like, wait, he's giving in. He's backing down. Is he apologizing for the gospel? But then I watch the whole feeling in the room change and the anger dissipate and the people warm up and we wound up having a really warm and positive conversation. And by the end, we walked out of the room as friends with new respect and appreciation for each other. And even more barriers to the gospel were broken down so that in the future, we actually stood a chance to have a conversation with them about Jesus and the gospel that they could hear. Because my friend and my fellow leader gave me and gave us an example of what Jesus is actually like. Humble. Gentle not puffed up, not defensive or arrogant like I was. May we grow more and more to be like that too so that we can better represent the gospel with our lives. Let's pray. God, we believe that you inspired the Apostle Paul to live the life he lived to share the mystery that he shared and to hammer it home to the Corinthians and to us. And we live in a world and we have a human nature which part of us thinks the life he's calling us to, the life of love, is foolish. And yet there's another part of us, the part that's listening to your Holy Spirit, which says, no, this is actually the wisdom of God and the key to everything. And so day by day, we battle to put others before ourselves. and We fight our own arrogance. And I pray that your gospel, your cross, your good news would continue to deflate us and make us into a people of love. Amen.